This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Thank you, James. What's happening, folks? How are we? Good morning. Well, I'm good. My name's Arnaldo. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a real pleasure for me to open up God's Word for us this morning. Uh, but before we do that, I want to, again, reiterate some of the stuff that uh, uh, Brad was praying for. We actually have uh, one of our own uh, who is a member here, a uh, member of our gospel community in Peekers, Nick Nielsen, who's a firefighter, uh, who for weeks hasn't been home. He kind of dips in for a day and then goes out. Uh, uh, but we, we want to specifically pray for him. He's on the front lines of fighting uh, the devastation of these fires. And so I want to pray again specifically for him and for Kat and uh, Noah, his wife and son. Uh, and also uh, that God would help us this morning um, uh, really listen. Uh, not only listen with our ears and our heads, but listen with our hearts. Because I, I do feel that God has a word for us this morning. So if you would join me. That would be awesome. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. Uh, We don't want to judge our circumstances. Rather, we we want to judge our circumstances by your love and not your love by our circumstances. And so we ask for a right heart, a right posture to know what to say, what to do, how to pray even. And we just ask now for mercy on this land that you would send rain. Uh, And we pray specifically for all the first responders, but for our very own Nick uh, who is out there, and um, uh, yeah, Lord, we just pray for safety, that you would put a hedge around him uh, and his team, uh, and for Kat as well, and for Noah, to uphold him as, as uh, their husband and dad is away. Uh, give us the wisdom and the heart, Lord, to respond well. And now as we look to your word, Jesus, uh, you are ultimate, you are beautiful, you are good, and we ask that you would do something crazy in this space that you would show up and you would show out, uh, that those who are far would come near, that those who are near would be set ablaze by the glory of God. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful and help me to remember the things that will be. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to try my hardest to not go for the cheesy 2020 vision jokes. I'm going to do one. It's not really a joke. But that's how I'm going to start. Now, the most important thing for your 2020 is going to be your vision of Jesus, of who he is. That is going to be, that's going to shape the rest of your year. In fact, it's going to shape the rest of your life. All of the questions that we have when we dig into the bedrock of who we are, our identity, all the questions that may arise, maybe because of the dysfunction you grew up with or the dysfunction of our culture, whether it is, uh, you know, questions about who you are and, and what you love and what you should set your mind and heart to this year as you think about resolutions and forming new habits. All those questions that you've been asking yourself, Since uh, December 31st up until now, all of those questions and the rest of the questions that you'll be asking yourself for the rest of this year will be shaped by this question. This is the one question that has the power and the vitality to shape the rest of those questions. This is the most important question of your year and of your life. Who really is Jesus? Beneath it all, Beneath all the things that we think he is, beneath the things that you've been taught, beneath it all, 
Who really is Jesus and who's Jesus today? And we've all, we all have a picture of who Jesus is. Every single person here is a theologian of some sort. We all have an idea of who he is, whether we gain that from the scriptures or from our culture or from uh, maybe an anemic Christian subculture. Wherever we get our picture of Jesus, we all have one. I want to show you a couple. One is uh, the Da Vinci Code. So Jesus here uh, becomes a wine connoisseur, marries Mary Magdalene, moves to the southern parts of France has babies, right? That's, that's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus that our culture has and, and holds to. And then there's this other picture of Jesus that I particularly like. I call this, now he's Greek Jesus, but he's a bit of gangster Jesus, throwing up gang signs. I'm not sure what's happening there. I like this Jesus, but he's a bit austere. He's a bit, you know, kind of reserved as it were. And then this other Jesus, which no doubt is a Western form of Jesus, is just buddy Jesus, right? Like he just wants to be just a sidekick. In fact, you know, he puts you in the driver's side and says, hey, I just want to hang out with you. That's buddy Jesus. And then there's this other one. I, I like to call him Puerto Rican Jesus. Uh, for some reason, he looks, he, looks Puerto Rican. he looks a little bit Puerto Rican. I'm not sure if I want to follow this one. Uh, but this is another picture of Jesus. I saw this all around the neighborhood growing up. Uh, and then there's this other Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. This was a huge hit where all the stars would wear, you know, this paraphernalia, Jesus is my homeboy, where again, Jesus just, he comes along just to enrich your life. He just wants to make your life just a little bit better. And this one, maybe the scariest and funniest is plotting Jesus, right? He's plotting on you. He's just waiting for you to mess up and he just wants to pounce. This is from uh, the Simpsons, obviously. But again, the question for us is, who, who really is he? Who is Jesus Christ to us today? Who really is, who, who, who is he really? And so I'm not going to go through the whole text that uh, James read. I'll be uh, focusing on the first six, cha- uh, six verses, rather. But I want to go through three movements. One is the story behind the story. I want to give us a bit of context on Revelation, on the book of Revelation. Uh, Then I want to offer us a new portrait, a possible new portrait of Jesus as a warrior king. And then I want to issue a new invitation from Jesus. So we're going to uh, do some context work, the story behind the story, a new portrait of Jesus, and a new invitation from him. So first I want to talk about what the book of Revelation is not. Uh, Because so often, maybe you came in here, you heard all Revelation. These guys are like the weird ones, right? Uh, uh, But Revelation is not a manual to decipher the future. Revelation was not designed or written to give us a precise map as to how to map out our political or cultural landscape. That's very clear, uh, rather, it's very important for us to understand. It's not fodder for wild speculation, even though it's been used that way uh, throughout our history, particularly in the 20th century of interpretation. Also, it is not a manifesto for holy war, which it it has been used for, particularly our text in Revelation 19. It's one of the most visceral texts in the entire scriptures, and that's why I wanted to start the year with it. It is not a manifesto for holy war. In fact, uh, one of the commentators on Revelation says this about it. Revelation does not promote personal vengeance or individual vendettas. John's vision, and John is the writer of Revelation, John's vision is much larger than that. 
He recognizes that a cosmic struggle is underway between God and evil, a struggle that manifests itself in people. Yes, sure, but even more in institutions, systems, and worldviews. Evil and God cannot and will not coexist in God's ultimate design. And this surely is good news worth celebrating, that evil and God will not and cannot coexist in God's ultimate design. And that's good news worth celebrating. So what is it? If it's not those things, what is the book of Revelation that we're going to be looking at? Uh, for one, it's a, it's a work of art that is deeply concerned and committed to the way of God in the world. It's deeply concerned and committed to the way of the kingdom, the way of God in this world, that we are not to uh, fight the evil of this world with the evil of this world. It is deeply committed to eradicating all evil God's way. It helps us to see that evil is not only embodied in uh, individual persons, but in systems and worldviews and institutions. That's a real thing. Paul speaks about them as the powers and the principalities. Revelation is a masterful work of art that displays the glory of who Jesus really is. That behind it all, this is who he is right now. And its goal is not to make us into a weird enclave of Christians, but it is to form disciples who know how to walk well in this culture. That's the goal of Revelation. And to become a friend of the book of Revelation is to rewire our imaginations. It rewires our imagination and it recalibrates our heart towards the kingdom of God. So I want to sort of strip away the, the weirdness, as it were, of maybe what you walked in with. But to become a friend of this book is not to become a friend of weird end time discussions. We're not going to start a book club around Left Behind or anything like that. That's not our position. It is to train us in discipleship. It is to reinvigorate our imagination for who God is and the glory of Jesus in this world. So towards that end, I want to look at who Jesus is right now as he sits in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. Because so often we know Jesus as the humble and meek, lowly servant. But let me just give you a preview of what's about to happen is he's no longer this humble, lowly servant. He is ferocious. And the most important thing of your year will be to see the glory of Jesus as to how he is today. If he were to reveal himself now, how would we see Jesus? That's the question for us this morning. But a quick, question, uh, a quick uh, um, a caveat on, on language and metaphor and imagery. As James mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier that the book of Revelation is replete with imagery and metaphor and dragons and beasts and all, all these things. And so often, I think there's a, an impulse that has been, uh, we've been trained in in our culture to say, oh, well, it's, it's imagery. We can't really take this seriously. It's, it's a metaphor. It doesn't really mean that. And while that may be true, I, I want to I uh, push back on that because the way imagery and metaphor work, it never diminishes the reality that it's trying to explain. That's so important to understand. That metaphor and imagery never diminish the reality that it's trying to explain. It only heightens it. 
And so later on, and we won't uh, sort of extra, we won't get into that part of the text, but later on when it talks about Jesus throwing the beast and the false prophet in, alive into a fire that burns with sulfur, we think, oh, well, that's not, that's not literal. Fair enough. Whatever it is, is a hell of a lot worse than that. And so I don't want us to uh, tame the book of Revelation and tame these parts of the text that we may sit uncomfortable with. Because there's gonna be some things that I'm gonna show you from the text that we may feel uncomfortable with. I want to show you who Jesus is today. An imagery metaphor never diminishes reality, but only heightens it. So with that said, I'm gonna to go to verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And so John, John is uh, the author, who, who, who we believe the author of Revelation is. It's the same John, most likely, that wrote the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in your New Testament. Also the writer of 1, 2, 3 John, smaller uh, letters at the, uh, towards the end of the New Testament. Additionally, what we know about John is that he was part of the 12 disciples that Jesus called to follow him during his earthly ministry. And out of the 12, Jesus had three, James, John, and Peter who were his inner circle. And then in that inner circle, you had John. John was his best friend. And so John not only uh, will, will show us these marvelous visions that he gets throughout his uh, time in exile on the island of Patmos, but John knows Jesus. And he's gonna show us something spectacular in this text. And here we have Jesus riding on a white horse. Now, to us, maybe that may not mean much, but this is a symbol of a, of a war horse. Usually white is, in, in the book of Revelation, usually white is a picture of purity and peace. A white horse, if you're riding in on a white horse, you are riding in for war. And John goes on to even say that. That Jesus comes to make, that is such a picture that we want to domesticate, that we want to sort of just maybe put on the back burner. We don't really want to talk about that. But whatever that war is going to look like, and we'll talk about that, we need to, we need to have a category for Jesus who comes to make war. That is incredibly important for us to understand. And he comes to judge. But he doesn't come to judge by our standards. He comes to judge by his own. He is the God who stands outside of this world. The one who uh, the scriptures say, uh, Isaiah 40 rather says, uh, that he holds the whole universe in the span of his hand. He has an objective view that we could never hope to have. And so he judges by what is right, by what is real, by reality, by truth and justice. And this was prophesied about him in Isaiah 11, 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. He says there, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, of Yahweh, and he shall not judge, listen, he shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor 
and decide with equity, with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And so Jesus's judgment is not like our own. Jesus's judgment cannot be swayed. It is good news to know that Jesus cannot be bribed, that he is fair, that he is equitable. And this is good news for us. And additionally, what we find in this text is that Jesus has these eyes like flaming fire. And there's, there's these other beautiful pictures of, of his skin as, as bronze, burnished bronze, and his eyes are burning fire. And this is a picture of Jesus' ability to see through all, to see all, to know all. Do you get that? That Jesus right now sees you past, present, future. He knows every thought. He knows every thought of a thought. He knows every single last word. He knows every single last action. There is absolutely nothing hidden from his sight. If you remember in the Lord of the Rings, uh, if you had the ring that ruled all other rings and you put it on, there was this eye of Sauron made of fire that would pinpoint the person anywhere they were. This, this, this sign, the symbol of, of omnipotence, of omniscience, of knowing all. And Jesus, we need to have a picture of Jesus that is so grand that we can't put him in our back pocket. He sees all. There is not one thought, one action in your life that is not seen by the king. And this is exactly what he is. Many diadems, this, this language of having many crowns, so many crowns, you can't even count them. And, and, and you get this imagery, right? That, that uh, earlier in the book of Revelation, uh, the, uh, uh, the Antichrist, the, the, uh, the Satan, rather, had crowns on his head. The dragon had crowns on his head that you could count. Jesus has many diadems, many crowns that you can't even count, showing what? His authority his kingship, his rulership, that Jesus is in control no matter what. And he has a name on him that no one knows. That one weirded me out for a while until I realized uh, that to know a name of a God in this culture and in many of our animistic cultures in today's uh, age is to be able to control him or her or it. And so to know a God's name is to control it to control him, to control her. And here we see that there is a name written on Jesus that only he knows. What he's showing you here is that you cannot control this king. You cannot bribe this king. You cannot sway this king. He is absolutely free and sovereign. In fact, he is the one being in the universe who is absolutely free. We have been fed this really toxic lie in our culture that somehow we're really free. But we're so tied to our own culture, to our own families, to our own inclinations. Jesus is radically free. And no one can control him. And so we see Jesus coming in on a white horse, riding triumphantly, ready to make war on everything that is evil in the world. Everything. Everything that aligns itself with the kingdom of darkness. He knows all, he sees all, he's free, he is just, he is equitable, and Jesus comes as a warrior. We need to have a category for Jesus as the warrior. 
who fights our battles, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 13, he goes on. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And as I read this, the, the, the feeling that comes over me is that it's about to go down. Like this is battle. And at this point, even while Jesus remains absolutely free with a name that no one knows, there's another name on him. And that's the word of God. And I thought, why? Why? Why does, you know, he has so many, he has four names on him. And, and what, like, what, what's that? Is, was he confused? It, what, what, what's happening here? And this is what's happening, that even while Jesus remains fully, fully free from being coerced by us or being controlled by us, he still wants to be known by us. That he's a warrior king who seeks to be known. And this is a battle of battles. And we see an army behind Jesus wearing white, which is weird because you don't do that for a battle. Like if you've seen any war movies, they're not wearing white, right? And I wonder why. And I think they know something. They know something because later on in the text, which again, we won't go into detail with, uh, the battle is quite anticlimactic, to be honest with you. If you keep reading, uh, there's this battle, there's uh, these forces of light and these forces of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and they're about to go head to head. Jesus is riding on a white horse, ready to make war on everything that is evil in the world. And then later on, you just find Jesus throwing the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And the saints behind him, or the angels behind him, are just with him. And their robes stay white and pure. And there is something inside of us that needs this. Even now, as you sit in your seat, and maybe you may feel some discomfort, there's something inside of our collective consciousness in our culture that needs this, that wants this. It's all over our movies and our music, our songs, our storytelling. In fact, I want to show you one right now. saw this for the first time, you went crazy. If you're anything like me, like I was in the movie, I, man, it was, it went, it was lit. It went off in the movie theater and we love it. We love, we love, we see this here in Lord of the Rings and all these epic tales of, of light and darkness of good versus evil. We love, and we need the fact we need to know that one day evil will be eradicated. We need that. It's inside of 
us, we all have this deep desire to see Revelation 19 play out. But there's one twist in this text is that before Jesus even rides out onto the battlefield, his robe is dipped in blood. And some people think that that is a symbol of the blood of his enemies, I think. And, and a lot of others think that rather, how, when we think about how is it that Jesus defeats the powers and the principalities, Colossians says. How is it that he does that? How is it that he defeats evil? How is it, listen, how is it that he can eradicate evil, destroy evil without destroying you? Where evil lives. Without destroying me without destroying all of humanity because we are all fallen and there is an impulse in us. How can he eradicate evil without eradicating us? And that blood that he rides onto the battlefield with this cosmic battlefield is his own. That Jesus rides out wearing his own blood. And we need to see this, that Jesus is this majestic warrior king that has sacrificed himself to win the battle for us, to eradicate evil out of this world, to expunge it from the world without expunging us. This is good news. That little, that little line, that, that little line of Jesus's, of his robe dipped in blood, that's good news. A God so ferocious that he opens his mouth and stars come out. A God who is so gigantic that he holds the, the, the universe in the span of his hand, who can count every star in the sky, who, can, who holds the mountains in the palm of his hand, who holds the oceans in the palm of his hand, who counts humanity as less than nothing. This is good news for us. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with, an iron, with a rod of iron, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so as Jesus is riding on this white horse, posse behind him, robe dipped in blood, he pulls out a sword from his mouth. Remember, we read that in Isaiah 11, where he, by the sword of his mouth, by his judgment, he will slay the wicked, showing his complete and sovereign rule. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this word, this sword, is a word of final judgment on the collective powers and principalities and systems and institutions and everyone who aligns themselves with these things. It is his final verdict. That evil will no longer coexist. That the parasite of sin will no longer be found in his good creation, that everything that is contrary to his good purposes for the world will be tread in a winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. 
And so the presence of Jesus the King is experienced as wrath for those who are against him. And yet, that very same presence is experienced as safety. And that's why all over the Old Testament, you find God, all these metaphors for God saying that God is a, is a rock, that he is a fortress, that he is safety. Jesus is the absolute king of kings. It's tattooed on him. Do you know Jesus had a tat, has a tat? Like on his robe, king of kings, lord of lords. And sometimes that, that, those titles are lost on us because we don't live under, we don't really live under a monarchy. That title of king of kings, every single king that sets him up, himself, every queen that has set herself up in this world to rule, to be sovereign over a land, he rules. Every single one. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And today, listen, today, today, right now, this moment, he's calling for your allegiance. He's calling you to wake up and align yourself with him. And this is his new invitation for you. And this is his invitation for you, that God in Christ is bringing renewal, revival. He's reviving. He's bringing renewal to this world. And one day he will decisively and ultimately bring an end to all things that oppose him, all things that work against the flourishing. This is, listen, this is good for you. The things that we hold on to the dysfunctions that we hold on to kill us. They are not conducive to the way we were made. And so when we hear words like repentance or turning or, or sin, we think those are just religious words. No, these are medical terms that we are sick and God who created us, who knows us, who loves us, is giving us a new way to be human, to be his people. And all of the dysfunction, all of the, the parasitic dysfunction of this world that was introduced when Adam fell, the, 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 the alienation that we feel from our very own selves that manifest themselves in, in whether it's depression or anxiety or addictions, all, all those, we feel alienated even from ourselves. Why, why do we have to go out and find ourselves? What does that even mean? Like I'm here. And yet our culture tells us you just have to go, eat, pray, love, just go and go to a, 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 a mountain and go find yourself. We're so alienated even from our very selves. We don't know ourselves. And we're also alienated from one another. And we know that from the dysfunction and the arguments and the strife that we feel in our relationships and the, the breakdown that we experience. We're also alienated from the creative order. And ultimately, we're, we're, we're alienated from the God who created us, the deepest alienation that we experience. And all of this is overturned and put right by what God has done in Christ as he lived and died and rose again physically and ascended to the Father and is ruling and reigning forever. This is good news. And this God of majesty with eyes burning like fire, seeing through all things, riding on a war horse and being found in human form, Philippians 2, he humbled himself. Like that should strike you. 
That should do, if you were listening at all, that should strike you because this God who is majestic, who is holy, who is grand, who is nothing that we could ever imagine up became one of us, put on flesh, was weak. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 2, he continues, by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not only any death, but death on a cross, the worst possible death that you can think of in that time, he died. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. You, you hear that? The, Jesus, listen, Jesus doesn't come as an option. He doesn't come as someone on a buffet table that says, hey, you, can, you could pick me. He says, I'm the creator. I own you. And I can, and I've come back to buy you back. He has entered into human history, not to give us not, not to be one of many options, but to be king of kings and lord of lords in your life. And he's calling for your allegiance that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And this is who Jesus is. All throughout Revelation, I invite you to go home and just sit with the book of Revelation. It's okay that you may not understand everything. I definitely don't. No one totally does. But these are some of the titles. These are some of the pictures, the portraits of Jesus in the book of Revelation. The faithful witness. This is who he is. As you start your year, this is who he is for you. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who will come with the clouds. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He is the holy one, the true one. He is the amen. I, that's my favorite. He's the word up. He's the verily, verily, King James version. He is the yes. He is the amen. He is the origin of God's creation. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is the slain lamb, the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is a warrior. He is a judge. He is faithful and true. He is the word of God, the bridegroom. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the bright morning star. And it ends like this. He is the Lord. So my invitation to you today would be to align yourself with this Lord. The same ferocious God who will come back one day to deal decisively with evil is giving you clemency. He's giving you an opportunity today. He's offering you pardon. And it's the same Jesus. It's the same Jesus who on the night of his betrayal gets down on his knees and washes the feet of his own betrayer. It's this Jesus who says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friend. It's that one. The one with the eyes burning the fire, the one who is high and exalted, the one who is holy, the one who is other, the one who is the amen, the one who is faithful and true, the one who comes to make war on everything that is destroying this world and your life. He comes to be 
a friend. That is crazy. And he's offering you a chance today. Whether you know Jesus today, whether you've been playing around with Jesus, whether you have been trying to live both sort of trying to walk with Jesus, but not really letting go of, of all of this, whatever this is, whether you've been even using Jesus to get away from Jesus, whether you've been trying to be religious, whatever it is in your life, he is calling you to lay that down and be his friend. The creator is calling us to partner with him, to do whatever it takes to join him to bring the wayward home and to bring shalom, to bring peace in this world, to be agents of healing. That is good news. And at the center, at the very center of God's plan is a crucified Messiah who lived the life that you and I should have but could never live, the life that God deserves from us. Yes, he, des you, did you know? he deserves that from you. He is your creator. You're not equal. By the way, he deserves everything. And Jesus in our place has done that to give us an opportunity to follow Jesus, to recover our humanity, to join the mission of God, to live a life of extraordinary grace and joy and sacrifice that brings glory to him and brings joy to us. God is not anti-happy. He's saying, I want to give you joy for the rest of eternity. Psalm 1611 says that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore not pleasures that will end in death, not pleasures that will end even when our life ends, but he wants to give you pleasures forevermore. And we settle for cheap parasitic imitations, but he wants more for you. This year, he wants more for you. And the question for you as you walk out of here today and as you enjoy food and drink and meal and, and fellowship and fun, how are you going to respond to this king? I don't, I don't know where you are. I don't know where you're at in your walk with Jesus. But I do know this. He is calling for your allegiance. He is calling for you today, right now, to lay it all down. All of it. He wants to offer you pardon and clemency today. The king wants to pardon you and not make you a slave in his court, but a son a daughter, a friend. So I want to invite you to seriously, seriously consider and make that first move today. For today, the Bible says, is a day of salvation. And so we're going to go now into a moment of responding. We can respond in a few ways. I'd love to speak to you if and pray with you if this is something that you would want to consider, if you want to align yourself with the good of the world, if you want to be an agent of healing, if you want to be first healed by the king and then be sent out as a missionary of him, I would love to speak with you. But there's going to be a chance if you do follow Jesus to take the bread and the grape juice and to take the bread, dip it into the grape juice. And this signifies the body of Jesus that he took on, that he humbled himself and he put himself in flesh and he tore his body for us on the cross and shed the blood that his robe 
is dipped in as he rides out to war on the cosmic battlefield to eradicate evil without destroying us. I invite you into that. And then I invite you to sing, to stand and sing with us. So as I do that, let me pray. And I want to invite you into this new life that he's offering. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have done everything necessary, Lord, for us to be part of your family, to be sons and daughters, to hear that word that Jesus heard on the day of his baptism, that you are my son, you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. We get to hear that for ourselves from the same God who a sword is coming out of his mouth to slay everything that is wicked in the world is calling us friend. May we have such a greater vision of who Jesus is than our anemic versions of Jesus. Help us, we pray now, and it's in your beautiful and holy name. And we say, Amen.